How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello, and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Edwith Theogene, Organizing Director of Generation Progress. And I'm Emily Leach, the Senior Press Associate at Generation Progress. And we're here today to talk about impeachment. So today we'll be revisiting the subject of impeachment, which was la- which we last discussed when Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi opened an impeachment inquiry into President Trump in October. As you might imagine, a lot has happened since then. Hello, 2020. <laughs> to walk us through how the impeachment process has progressed and what's still to come, we're joined by Jeremy Vanuk, a research analyst with the Moscow Project, and Morgan Finkelstein. Um, the press secretary for the Moscow Project. Thank you both for joining us today. Hello and welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for stopping by. Um, so let's start off with Jeremy. The last time we talked about impeachment on the show, uh, the impeachment inquiry had just been announced. Before we move on to what's happened since then, can you just give us a quick recap of the basis for the inquiry? Yeah, the basic facts of the inquiry have really not been in question since even before the investigation was announced. You know, back in late September, we learned that Trump was effectively using the power of his office to extort the Ukrainian government into fabricating dirt on his political opponents, into announcing an investigation into uh, the Biden family and Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's sons work in Ukraine, and really a wild conspiracy theory that Ukraine secretly was the one interfering in the 2016 election. And really all we've gotten since then is confirmation, not just from Trump himself, but from all of the witnesses that this is exactly what he was trying to do. Wow. Um, At a high level, can you take us through what's happened since then? We've seen basically a parade of witnesses who came forward, all of whom told the same basic story. Mm -hmm. Trump dangled first a White House meeting and then military aid, $400 million worth that Ukraine pretty desperately needs to fight off Russia, which has been trying to invade from the east for uh, six years now, now that we're in 2020. Um, (laughs) And basically conditioning these on them announcing these investigations that he wanted, which pretty clearly benefit nobody but him. The only good that would come out of it, good in his mind, is that it would help him in the 2020 election against the person he seems to consider his top rival. Interesting. Yeah. So, Morgan, um, kind of moving on to the next step of the process, um, we saw these public hearings that took place first in the House Intelligence Committee, um, which aired, you know, across tons of news channels. I know that you guys were monitoring those super closely, your team. Um, so we were wondering if you guys could just talk a little bit about some of the most important moments from those hearings. What did you, did you find anything surprising or was it kind of just what you expected? 
Um, yeah, I think the hearings, they followed the, the trajectory that we expected um, based on the information that we learned from the government whistleblower who initially sort of kicked all of this off by saying that he had observed wrongdoing and thought what Trump was doing with his relationships with Ukraine um, seemed to be really shady and seemed to be very political and seemed to be not above board. Um, and what we saw was a lot of really courageous, very senior diplomats, folks from all across the foreign policy and national security apparatus of the country, confirming what the whistleblower said and saying, hey, look, I'm putting my neck out there. I am an apolitical employee of the government. I focus on things abroad. Like, I really don't want to get into this. But this the misconduct by Trump has risen to such a level that we are all coming forward to say pretty much in unison that what Trump has done with Ukraine is not okay. It's not legal. We're witnessing it. And um, we're, we're here to say that this is wrong. Um, so that's mm -hmm. what we really saw throughout the hearings um, and why the witnesses have been such an important piece of this experience because, you know, it's one thing to hear a congressperson say, you know, I've reviewed a document and it appears to be there, wrong, there was wrongdoing. And another to have um, a diplomatic staff member say, I was sitting in a restaurant in Ukraine when I heard a million dollar donor to the president uh, on the phone with the president saying, Ukraine, like, if you don't do my bidding, like, you're not getting any money. Like, we don't care about you. We only care about political investigations. Um, mm -hmm. So that that testimony was so compelling and so powerful and uh, really, I think, told a story to the American people in a way that you couldn't have gotten if not through these public open hearings. Yeah. Did you do you think that that had, you know, a big influence on public opinion? Did we see anything move in that kind of area? Or do you think this was kind of just like a niche thing that only, you know, people who were paying really close attention were seeing? I think it definitely was the biggest platform for this conversation that it could possibly have had. Um, we've seen moving and polling um, from the beginning from before the impeachment inquiry was announced to after the hearings, you know, there were double digit movement and folks thinking that A, the inquiry was valid, B, Trump did something wrong, C, like you should not be using the foreign policy might of the United States of America for something as petty as a reelection campaign. Um, and you, you really saw people regular people who tuned in, maybe not for 12 hours of hearing a day like Jeremy did, um, <laughs> but folks who saw the highlights and folks, you know, I had my friends coming up to me or, or even like messaging me on Instagram being like, hey, like who was the guy in the bow tie? He was really powerful. Like he seems like a good dude. Like I should trust him. Right. And I would say, yeah, you know, like it's great that you saw the the even the highlights and the small bits that folks saw and were sharing and were talking about like you wouldn't have gotten that um, without this being such a major part of the national conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, I think what was interesting too. I know that there were four constitutional scholars who also participated during the hearings. Um, what of what they shared? What do you think was like most compelling of some of their arguments? I think that one of the things that we heard from three of the four constitutional scholars, uh, Noah Feldman. Pam Carlin and Michael Gerhardt, I believe were their names, was that if this isn't impeachable, then basically nothing is. That this is wow. pretty much exactly what the founders had in mind when they wrote impeachment into the Constitution. And the fourth, who was brought by the Republicans uh, on the House Judiciary Committee, who they kind of brought in to buttress their own argument that Trump did not do anything impeachable also said that it was an impeachable offense. His only real objection was, well, we haven't seen enough evidence yet, and if the evidence does show what the allegation is, 
then that would be impeachable. And I disagree. I think that the evidence is enough to draw a conclusion from it. But it's also striking because the reason we haven't seen more evidence than we have is because of Trump's wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. On top of extorting Ukraine, he is actively trying to block the House, block the American people from learning more. So really, this testimony that was theoretically there to exonerate Trump only demonstrated even further just how bad what he's doing is. It's so fascinating how this is all coming to play. It's almost like an episode of Scandal, but it's our <laughs> lives. <laughs> right. And, you know, like any good Trump scandal, you've got the sort of peripheral folks doing like even more wild, shady things. You've got Rudy Giuliani globetrotting, trying to make a buck off of everybody. You've got the, the Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who have been indicted for trying to funnel foreign money into American elections, who were um, having meetings with Devin Nunes' staff in Ukraine, who were working with Rudy Giuliani, who were possibly funded by a very wealthy. Russian-connected oligarch, so it's got all the hallmarks of a classic Trump scandal. <laughs> and let's not forget uh, Attorney General Bill Barr, who is off on his own adventures, tangential but still related to Trump's demands, which is trying to undermine the Russia investigation, even after his department's inspector general found that, no, there was not bias. Yes, it was a legitimate investigation, and yes, it was you know correctly predicated and was an important thing to investigate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think we're going to take a quick break and then and then come back to everything that's been happening um, with this impeachment scandal and inquiry. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us. And we'll be back soon with the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Emily Leach. And I'm Edwith Theogene. And today we're joined by Jeremy Vanuk, a research analyst with the Moscow Project, and Morgan Finkelstein, the press secretary for the Moscow Project. And we're talking about what's happening with the impeachment inquiry and what's still to come in that whole process. Um, so the first thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about in this segment was um, the articles of impeachment that we've landed on. Um, so I was wondering, Jeremy, if you could first kind of give us an overview of what an article of impeachment is um, and, you know, what articles that the House eventually did come to kind of land on. The articles of impeachment are basically the charges against Trump. Um, they are the enumeration of what he's done that the House considers impeachable. This is something that, you know, the House passed back when Andrew Johnson was impeached, when Bill Clinton was impeached. They were about to pass it when uh, Richard Nixon resigned back in the 1970s. But it's kind of the equivalent of charges in a criminal case. They don't have to rise to the level of criminality because impeachable offenses aren't necessarily criminal offenses. But uh, in a lot of cases, they do. Um, this time around, what we have are two articles for abuse of power. That one kind of covers all of the things with Ukraine, all of the ways that he tried to extort Ukraine into helping him in the 2020 election. And then the second one is for obstruction of Congress, which is about all of the steps that he has taken, blocking subpoenas, refusing to release documents, uh, attempting to intimidate witnesses via Twitter and in press conferences to make sure that the investigation doesn't proceed unhindered. And how did we land on those two? There was actually, it seems, quite a bit of debate about what the actual articles were going to be. There was a lot of discussion, you know, should there be an article specifically for bribery? Should there mm -hmm. be an article specifically for extortion? 
um, what exactly would the obstruction of Congress article uh, entail. And really, uh, as I understand it, these are kind of, you know, there are only two uh, actual articles themselves, but they really cover everything that Trump's done. You know, abuse of power includes whether you want to call it a quid pro quo, extortion, bribery, all of those things are covered under abuse of power. And it's language that the founders, the people who wrote impeachment into the Constitution, would uh, recognize, would consider one of the big things that they were trying to block with the impeachment articles. Yeah, and I think it's important, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion within the Democratic caucus and a lot of pressure um, on Leader Pelosi to expand the articles and include every wrong thing that Trump has ever done. And a lot of people were really vocal about wanting that to come out of this process. But I think at the end of the day, um, from the very beginning of this process, Leader Pelosi set out a standard that said she wanted a quick, efficient, to the point impeachment process. Um, she wanted it to be fair. She wanted it to be backed up by facts. She wanted it to be by, backed up by the work of her committees that she assigned to work on this process. Um, and so that's how we ended up with two narrow articles that really were were slam dunk cases, were, were irrefutable, were, were borne out in the evidence presented through this particular process. Um, and I think that's why we saw such overwhelming support for these two articles from every type of member of the Democratic caucus who, who took their job seriously. You know, we've got rather conservative members like Abigail Spamberger, Elaine Luria, a lot of national security minded folks who at the end of the day were so comfortable with how solid these articles of impeachment were and how dire the situation was that every single one of them voted for it. Um, I think we only had like one or two defections and one of the defections a week later joined the Republican Party. Um, (laughs) So I, I think she really struck a good balance of communicating the message, identifying the wrongdoing, but not getting bogged down in some of the kind of conversations um, on the political margins that we can tend to have as a party. <laughs> it, it really uh, nails down the fact that this is not a policy dispute. This mm-hmm. is not a question of do you agree with whether or not you know Ukraine deserves aid. It's not a question of what direction you think the U.S. government should be going in, aside from the question of should the president be above the law? Should the president be somebody who is allowed to do these specific corrupt actions while he is president? One thing that I've seen asked about the process of, you know, the inquiry and arriving at these two articles is, you know, if Donald Trump were to do something else impeachable in the next few months or year, is there a chance to go back and add more articles of impeachment without kind of restarting a new inquiry? Or is that something that we'd have to kind of start from the beginning again? Uh, As I understand it, and this is a question that seems to be very much up in the air, but there have been signals from the Democratic Party that while they have sent the articles of impeachment, they have voted on them, they have not yet sent them to the Senate, uh, they are not going to stop investigating Trump. Mm -hmm. Just because they have taken this one vote doesn't mean that if it turns out that Trump was also doing something as corrupt on, say, Iran, or if he turns out to have followed through on his request for China to also investigate his political opponents, those will not go uninvestigated. Whether that takes the form of another impeachment investigation in addition to the articles, that's a question that we'll only know if and when Trump does those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the investigations and the efforts to hold Trump accountable certainly are not going to stop. That's Great. good to know. Um, 
what do you think is the next step in the process? So since the House has voted, taken a look at these um, articles of inquiry, and they've passed, as you said, without defection except for one person who's no longer <laughs> part of the Democratic Party, bye. Um, what do you think are the next steps? So the next step in the process is that the articles of impeachment get sent to the Senate, and that's um, where we are seeing a lot of, you know, inside the beltway kind of process negotiations and process conversations. Um, and it's really, it's it's disappointing to see, you know, from the beginning of this entire process, Mitch McConnell has very much said he'd be happy, you know, he's working hand in glove with the White House. He's, you know, doing, following the White House's lead and doing whatever they'd like out of this process. And that's just not how this process and how the co-equal branch of government Congress was designed. Um, They are supposed to be a co-equal branch. And when he's saying Mm -hmm. to our faces that he's taking his direction from the White House and doing whatever he can to help the White House get out of this, like that doesn't really make you feel good about the integrity of the process that he's going to run on his side. Um, And so I think uh, Leader Pelosi is probably making the right move. And she has not technically sent the articles over to the Senate um, mm-hmm. and what I don't actually know what that looks like if she has to like print it out and walk it over whatever it is she <laughs> actually has to do she hasn't done um, and she's kind of keeping her cards close to her chest in terms of how she's going to play that out because I think of so many concerns about whether or not Mitch McConnell can put on a trial and be an impartial ju- jury member um, it's ju- it's a trial judged by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court John Roberts mm-hmm. Um but if you've like if in any other trial, if you were trying to pick a jury and one guy was sitting there saying, I'm going to mess up this whole process, like I think this trial is a sham, then that's not you really be a on fair trial. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Nobody would put that on. And just to kind of tease it out a little bit, I think with the impeachment process, the House is required to create the articles of impeachment and then they give it over to the Senate and the Senate host to trial. Yes. Um, you brought up the word integrity, which I think is really awesome, because I would love to hear if either of you have thoughts around what does this mean for the integrity of our democracy? Um, I mean, that's a big existential question. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a huge a question. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, nothing good if McConnell follows through on what he's promising. Yeah. Okay. We'll end it with that and come back um, after this break. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Today we are talking about impeachment, and we are joined by um, we are joined by Jen- Jeremy Vinuk from the Research Analyst of the Moscow Project, and Morgan Finkelstein, Press Secretary for the Moscow Project. And my co-host today is Emily Leach. Hi. Hi. So last couple segments, we talked about impeachment. We talked about the articles of inquiry. We talked about where we are at the process. And now um, the question that I have for you all is what would a fair trial look like in the Senate on impeachment? Uh, The first thing that you would need, which sounds obvious but is a major point of contention, is witnesses. Uh, Witnesses are a very normal part of literally (laughs) any trial in the United States of America. (laughs) And yet, for some reason, this is a huge sticking point. Um, The negotiations between uh, Senator Chuck Schumer and Senator Mitch McConnell have pretty much broken down over this point. and you are seeing Republicans in McConnell's caucus kind of fall in line and claiming that uh, basically 
they can vote on witnesses after opening statements and like we swear we'll do it this time we promise we just want to get through opening statements first and it's like fool me once kind of thing Mm -hmm. um so if they're really interested in operating a fair trial it's very unclear to me why um they would not want to include witnesses especially uh because there are so many people that we have still not heard from throughout this process uh because president trump has instructed so many of his staff to defy subpoenas like legal orders to come and talk because that's how the government works um and tell us what's going on so we've got folks like uh mick mulvaney who was extremely involved uh in the the technicalities of holding up aid to Ukraine. Uh, We've got several of his staff members, um, and we've got, uh, perhaps most infamously, uh, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who yesterday, or maybe the day before, uh, indicated that he would be willing to testify were he to be called as a witness in the Senate. Um, So we've got folks, we've got a witness list, we've got like a pretty solid reason to need to hear from them, uh, and yet Mitch McConnell is trying to conduct a quote-unquote fair trial without ever hearing from them. Um, So that's raising a lot of questions about the integrity, like I talked about earlier, the integrity of this process. And another thing that we would likely see if it was a real trial is documents. We would see the emails between people involved in the decision to withhold aid about the decision to withhold aid. And we've seen a few of them. Uh, Some people in the press have been able to get access to some of them through Freedom of Information Act requests, through FOIA. We've seen people like Gordon Sondland who managed to bring their own records with them. But that's another thing that the administration is basically blocking from happening. There are thousands of documents that the House has requested, and the administration has basically just said, nope, and is holding on to all of them. And they're basically doing this runaround where they say, oh, if you want these subpoenas enforced, you need to go through the courts, and then going to the courts and arguing to the courts, you, the courts, have no role to play in impeachment because the Constitution doesn't explicitly name you. So they're basically withholding witness testimony, documents, any evidence that might be presented in this trial, while also saying that the process you would go through to get them in the trial is illegitimate. Yeah. So I know that you know, there's uh, m- most of the Republicans in the Senate have appeared to be falling right in line behind Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. But um, I would imagine that for a few kind of more vulnerable senators, this might look pretty bad to their constituents that they are refusing to conduct a fair trial um, in this kind of, you know, important thing that's happening in our country. Um so is there a chance for these people to maybe, you know, vote for, you know, a fair trial and having witnesses and documents, but then um, still, you know, try to fall in line kind of ultimately like for the actual decision making? Um, or do you guys think that, you know, ultimately we won't be able to ensure that fair trial happens? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly um, some and, and some vulnerable senators who are up for re-election in 2020. Um, And part of the reason this process playing out in front of the American people is so important um, is because there are voters who are going to make real choices about whether to send these folks back to the Senate for another six-year term. Um, And seeing how they behave, even in conversations that seem to be kind of mundane and process-oriented, are are really big choices and really big contrasts presented to these voters. So you've got someone like Susan Collins, who... uh, 
two decades ago um, during the Clinton impeachment trial argued for a fair process, including things like witnesses and evidence. Um, and we actually saw, so uh, folks in Maine launched a website called whatchangedsusan.com wow. uh, to call her out on the fact that she literally had the opposite position uh, last time we had an impeachment. Uh, and she got so upset about it, she complained to the press and oh said, God. well, it would have you know, been more open to the Senator Schumer's process, but he made a website attacking me, so I guess this whole trial is whatever. That oh cannot God. be the case for our democracy. <laughs> I know. Like, that cannot be. If you're that thin-skinned, maybe like Senator isn't the job for you. <laughs> I think the last segment, um, I sort of asked this like big question around like, what do you all think about the integrity of our democracy with all of this process, conversation, yeah. and everything being fudged? And just thinking about these vulnerable senators and the way that they're behaving and responding to this process, I think is also just... Absolutely. And the polling that's come out in the last couple of weeks since since the House passed these articles of impeachment makes it extremely clear that the American public, by a pretty overwhelming majority, 70 percent, 75 percent, numbers you basically don't see anymore, believes that the Senate should hold a fair trial mm -hmm. and should call John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, people like that to testify. And that's not being driven by, you know, some partisan split. You know, there is, as with everything, a partisan split, but a majority of Republican voters, when they are polled, say that they think that there should be a fair trial. So these people who are potentially on the block, not just Susan Collins, but Lisa Murkowski, Cory Gardner, they're all people who, if they went back, they would not only be potentially risking their reputation with Democrats and with independents in their states, mm -hmm. they may even be risking their reputations and their votes among Republicans who believe that it is the Senate's duty to fully hold this trial and to have a fair deliberative process over, you know, the impeachment of the president, something that's only happened twice in American history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's a great point and it, you know, brings up kind of a lot of that, you know, this isn't really super partisan. There has been, um, there's obviously a partisan split in, you know, people who, you know, support maybe removal, but I think that a lot of people recognize that this is something that, you know, Donald Trump did that is extremely worrying and um, feels kind of out of the scope of normal behavior. So I think that it does seem like this could be a critical moment for some of these senators to really kind of take a moment and think about why they're in the Senate and why they're they're doing the things that they're doing. Um, so do you have any kind of message or ideas for people if they want to call their senators and, and talk to them? And like, you know, what do you think, what kind of message do you think could work coming from a constituent um, in maybe persuading them or at least making them think? I think one part of it is Susan Collins isn't the only one who was in office back in the late 1990s mm -hmm. when Bill Clinton was impeached, who's singing a very different tune now than she was back then. You also have people like Lindsey Graham, who was one of the impeachment managers, basically one of the uh, representatives who was in charge of presenting the case um, in the late 1990s in the impeachment of Bill Clinton, who are basically saying the exact opposite of what yeah. they were saying back then. So that's one thing that I think asking these people to hold themselves accountable, not just to the American public right now, but to what they have said before about the necessary function of Congress in being a check 
to the American president. Exactly. We've got like all this written stuff out there. So yeah, that's interesting. I feel like government is intended to work a certain kind of way. And it's like just because there's one either political party that's in power, for instance, the Republicans taking over the Senate, that doesn't mean that government should operate and function differently. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, there there's so many arguments to be made, especially given with how narrow these uh, articles of impeachment ended up being like you don't have to be in the same party as the folks who represent you. You don't have to agree with them on literally any policy issue. As Jeremy mentioned earlier, it's a question of like, it's not a policy question. It's a question of, do you think uh, the American democratic process should only happen in America? Or do you think we should start inviting every single country in the world to meddle in our domestic affairs? Like, it's a pretty easy, like, do you want foreign countries interfering in the election or no? That's that's the only question you have to answer. And if the answer is no, then there's a pretty clear way that you need to be approaching this process. It's not about party. It's not even about how you feel about foreign policy, how you feel about foreign aid, how you feel about investigations. It's do you think foreign countries should mess with our elections? Check yes or no. Yeah. And many of them have spent the last couple years saying that they don't believe foreign countries should be involved. You know, we had this little uh, Mueller investigation that wrapped up uh, early last year where every Republican pretty much ended up going on the record and saying that they thought that what Russia did in 2016 was bad. Even the ones who uh, shied away from acknowledging the truth of the Trump campaign's involvement in it, basically all of them came forward and said that foreign countries should not be involved in the American electoral process. And for all of them to be going back on that seems to be a pretty big problem when the only difference now is that Trump was even more explicit than he was before about thinking that this is a totally fine, totally perfect, as he would say, thing to raise on a call with a foreign leader. It does seem insane. One other question that I had um, was I I know that you mentioned that, you know, John Bolton had indicated that he might comply with a a Senate subpoena. And then there's a bunch of other people that we still haven't heard from. What kinds of information would you expect to get from those people or what what kind of information do you think that John Bolton has that would be really, you know, useful in this in this trial? I think the information that they have is that they were even closer to the president's decision-making process than even some of the people who we've uh, heard from already. People like Gordon Sondland, who was ambassador to the EU and gave some of the most explosive testimony. You know, John Bolton was in a lot of those meetings. He could corroborate everything that um, that Sondland said. Mick Mulvaney has pretty much already confessed. Uh, he gave that <laughs> yes. wild press conference back in October where he said, we do this all the time, get over it, when he was asked, isn't that a quid pro quo? Um, He denies that that's what he meant, but it's pretty obvious that that's what he meant. And he is the person who, you know, he is both White House Chief of Staff and the head of the Office of Management and Budget, which means he was the person effectively responsible for making Trump's demand that aid to Ukraine be withheld uh, actually happen. So he would be the person who would be able to answer questions about when did Trump say this? uh, How was it? How how was the process to withhold the aid uh, carried out? And the fact that they almost certainly would not be able to deliver a coherent alternate explanation would really cement just the extent to which the only possible explanation 
for what Trump did is that he was trying to advance his own interests in 2020 by getting investigations of his opponents. Wow. Yeah, Mick Mulvaney was the guy with the money, and so Mick Mulvaney is the guy who has the receipts, and we want to see him. <laughs> Show us that. the receipts. We need receipts for a fair trial. Oh, my God. Great. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to take our last break here, um, and then we'll be back to kind of finish up and um, talk more about what's going on with impeachment. Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Emily Leach. And I'm Edwith Theogene. And today we're talking to Jeremy Vanuk and Morgan Finkelstein from the Moscow Project. Um, so coming back to you guys, what can people do to continue to apply pressure around impeachment, whether you're just kind of an average citizen or you're a member of Congress or someone working on political issues like you guys are? Um, what do you think that we can do to push this process forward even if the Senate refuses to kind of ensure that fair trial that we've been talking about? I think continuing to put pressure on on their senators is really one of the most important things, you know, continuing to make it clear to them that their vote to protect Trump, if that's how they decide to vote, their vote to protect him from a fair trial is something that they would consider unacceptable. Mm -hmm. But it's not just that. They're also, as Morgan said earlier, Every potential, you know, part of the Democratic Party ended up supporting impeachment. And that includes some people who are in districts that just flipped for the first time in decades, people who are young and who it's their first time in politics and who come from maybe conservative leaning places or places that went for Trump by three or four or five points in the uh, last presidential election. And it is also important that the American public know that those people, you know, that they have the support of their voters as well, that their decision to stand up for what they believe is right and not just do what they think might help them in an election year is recognized and is the right thing to do, just like it would be the right thing to do for someone like Cory Gardner or Susan Collins, who, even though they're, you know, in Trump's party to vote to, uh, hold him accountable, at least have him face a trial for what he's done, would be the right thing to do, regardless of political outcome. Yeah. And that kind of brings up another point, which is that we, you know, we've just entered 2020 and this is an election year. Yeah. So we've got we got people running for, you know, House seats that are up every two years. We've got people running for for Senate seats um, in a bunch of different states. And then we've got a presidential election and a primary. Um, how do you think that candidates can use this kind of information that we, you know, we've learned throughout this impeachment inquiry that we've just learned throughout the last, you know, three years of having Donald Trump as president? Um, how can how can candidates use that information uh, to connect with voters and, and help kind of, you know, flip whatever parts of the government that they can? Yeah, um, I mean, first of all, the impeachment trial has, or the impeachment inquiry and, and probably trial uh, have produced a lot of really damning facts about the president. And so if I'm running a campaign or some kind of other group, like I would hope that they would use that content to remind voters of what just happened because, you know, we live in a time where a year simultaneously takes five minutes and 10,000 years um, <laughs> to experience. So so making sure that uh, those campaigns are not afraid to call out Trump for what it is that he's done and, and incorporate that as a part of their campaigns. I also think it's very heartening that you know, we have several senators running for president and all of them have said, you know, if there's a trial, I'm coming off the campaign trail. I'm doing my duty. Yeah. I am making sure that I'm a part of this process. Um, and that really communicates the gravity of the situation to voters. Um, and I would hope that, you know, 
how seriously they are taking the process would maybe rub off on some of their colleagues across the aisle um, in taking this seriously, but we'll see how that goes. Um, and I think it's up to um, you know voters and, and participants in the political process to remind everyone how seriously we take this, you know, whether that's volunteering for a campaign, like like Jeremy mentioned, one of the, the frontline members that put their necks out to uh, ensure that they did right by the American people, whether that's donating if you're able to, whether that's going to a town hall from any kind of candidate and asking them questions about the process, asking them questions about future investigations. Um, I think American voters really relate and appreciate uh, elected officials who exercise their ability to hold people accountable and to hold the president accountable. Um, so we, you know, we have a tendency to jump around from scandal to scandal to scandal, but making sure that folks kind of really internalize and and act based on this, quite frankly, momentous moment in our country's history. Yeah, this is a pretty big moment. And I think it's a pretty low lift and easy lift to send a quick email or quick note to your member of Congress and let them know like how important this is to you and um, either thanking them for the work that they have done around this issue or encouraging them to do something about it. And I totally agree with you too. Like this is a big momentous year as well in regards to the election cycle and folks running for office. So this is part of the political process of engaging with your member of Congress or whoever's running for office. So this is a great way to get involved. One last question. So I want to thank both of you for being on the show today. Uh, Where can folks learn more about the Moscow Project and some of the work that you've done? Yeah, um, you can definitely visit themoscowproject.org. It has got just an absolute wealth of information about anything we've ever thought about. Uh, If you do a Google search for almost any player in the Russia or impeachment scandal, we will show up for you anyways. Uh, So just go straight to our website or our Twitter handle, Moscow underscore project, where Jeremy slaves away tirelessly (laughs) every day, clipping the most important parts of the hearing so you don't have to watch 12 hours. He uh, adds in our analysis. He retweets other smart people like our Twitter feed. You know, I'm just going to brag on Jeremy here for a second is really one of the most top notch, top quality things you can find on the Internet. (laughs) Don't follow me specifically because my feed is mostly about The Bachelor right now. (laughs) Well, that's a whole other. uh, We should do a show about The Bachelor. We will come back (laughs) and talk about that. Or uh, right right now, Meghan Markle is the main subject. Oh, wow. Oh, interesting. Well, do you guys want to give your handles, though, so people can follow you you if they want to? I'm Momo Fink, M-O-M-O-F-I-N-K. And I'm Jay Vanuck. Great. Well, thank you guys both so much for joining us. This has been um, a very informative show. And yes. uh, hopefully things work out, maybe. Uh, <laughs> we'll well, <see. laughs> We'll probably have you both back on the show to do another update. For I don't sure. think yeah. we're going to shy away from talking about impeachment and learning more about what's happening. Um, so, so much happening. And thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. Thank you.